I love that he used the word modeling because so much of who we are and who we minister is involved in that idea of modeling. I have worked, I'll give you a little resume, I've worked in two jails, <clears throat> I've worked in uh, two psych units, um, a children's home, I've done batter's treatment, I've done second offender drunk driving classes, and currently I work in the probate and family court. Who would have thunk that a person who never had children, who never married, would work on the front line at the probate and family court? I mediate divorces. I do investigations for, um, for custody, for parenting. And I'm at the end of the years of my career that over the hill, I'm over the hill, climbing down. But um, I can tell you what I've learned about what I've seen about modeling. And um, I used to, when I worked at the Middleton Jail, I would meet with Dad at 10 o'clock and his son at 11. There had been modeling in that home that had resulted in the child really learning well what his parents had taught him. And one of the things I say, uh, I've said this to a number of people, if I repeat myself, I'm sorry, but um, in my work, I will often exhort people and, and ask them the question when I have two parents in front of me, maybe one of them was betrayed by the other, all kinds of things have happened, they've grown distant, and we have to figure out a parenting plan. We have to figure out a custody plan. And I always ask them, what language does your child speak? And they'll say English or whatever language. And I'll ask them, uh, and I've said this to some of you before, so sorry for repeating. I'll ask them, do they speak Czechoslovakian? And I ask that because it's stupid. It's really, it doesn't make any sense. And a year and a half ago, I had two people from the Czech Republic, so that was an interesting thing. <laughs> and so they always say, no, do you speak French? No, do, you speak, do they speak uh, Russian? No. They speak English, how come? Well, we taught our child English. What else are you teaching your child? Are you teaching your child how to forgive? Are you teaching your child how to be kind? Are you teaching your child anger? What are you teaching your child? And this has been my whole career where I've seen there's nature and nurture, but what do we teach those who are our children, those who are around us? And of course, our high teacher is Jesus. He has modeled to us what he would like us to be in his image. And one of the things when you work a job like this, you don't always know what happened. I, I do triage. I don't know usually what happens with those people I've ministered to. And so you live with that ambivalence. And I just want to tell you a quick little story about what happened to me one day. I had awakened in the morning, and I had felt discouraged and depressed because I thought, does it matter what I do? Does it really matter what I do? And I drove to work with that kind of heaviness. And one of the things I do on my way to work is I always, I, I pray this little prayer. Bring to me, Father, the people 
you would like me to minister to for, for their sake and for my sake. So I had prayed that, prayed that prayer, but, you know, I was just, I don't know. I never see, I mostly never see the end of it. So I just was a little discouraged that day. I get to work, I was assigned to the desk, and shortly thereafter, a woman came up to the desk and she said, I know you. Well, when you reach this age, you don't know anybody. <laughs> I, have, I have a little song that, I say, that says, I'll wear a name tag if you will wear one too. Well, the last verse is, um, anyway, about if I wear a name tag, I'll know who I am. But So she came up to me and she said, I know who you are. And I said, well, she said, do you know who I am? I said, I don't know really who you are. Uh, tell me your story. And so she started to tell me a story. And she got with it like two or three lines into the story. And I realized, oh my goodness, this is the one case I wanted to know the answer to my whole career. I had worked at that point about 17, 18 years in the probate and family court. And I had always wanted to know what had happened with this family. So the backstory is, <clears throat> I had been assigned this as an investigation. The grandmother had come into the court and said, my daughter is abusing drugs. The father of the child is abusing drugs. The mother was 18 years old. And the court gave the grandmother the, cust the temporary custody of the child. They came back for a hearing. The mother said something, and the judge hmm, was a little suspicious. So she ordered an investigation, and I got the case. And I interviewed the mother, and she was very um, insistent that she didn't use drugs. She actually went out and took a test. She hadn't used any drugs. Uh, she showed me the results of the chat, uh, test, and there was something in her eyes. There was something in her that said, I think she's telling me the truth. I went to her mother's house, and I spent about three hours at her house. And if you spend three hours at anybody's house at the end of it, they forget that you work for the court, and they think you're their new best friend. And she told me a lot that day. She told me an awful lot, and I thought, oh, I think the mother has been skunked. And the mother had told me that every time her, uh, the mother was living with her aunt, and every time her mother came to bring the child, the grandmother came to bring the child to see her, she would be outside taunting her, just taunting her. And um, so I decided to go to the aunt's house, get there early, and watch. And sure enough, there was grandma taunting her daughter. I'm going to keep the child. You're never going to get your child back. Well, I realized that the answer to this case, in, in fact, was that the mother had been, uh, the grandmother had lied. This was an 18-year-old woman, young woman. I didn't know whether she was going to end up blowing it all on her own, but thus far she hadn't. And every week that that child wasn't in her care and custody, she missed that week of her child, which was so, so sad and so, so horrible for her. So the next day I went to work, and I was just verklempt, as they say in New York. Um, I was just really moved, and I, I went to the clerk. I hadn't been in the court long, long. I went to the clerk, and I said, is there any way the judge can bring this in early? Because this case isn't coming in for a month and a half, and that's a whole month and a half. This, this mother's not going to be with her child, and it's not right. So this woman went and asked the judge, 
This never happens, ever happens. You have to file motions, you have to blah, 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 blah. Never happens. She went to the clerk. I mean, the clerk went to the judge, and the judge said, if you bring him in this afternoon, I'll hear it. So my new best friend, the grandmother, I called her up, and she said, oh, yeah, I'll come in. And I called up the mother, and she said, sure, I'll come in. And that afternoon, I testified, and they testified, and the judge changed custody. I never knew what happened. So here this woman, here she was. And I said, what happened? And she said, well, my child is going to college next year. She's straight A's, and um, she has scholarships and and doing really, really great. Um, And I said, well, what about your mother? What happened with your mother? She said, she's never seen the child since. And she said, uh, the mother said, I reached out to my mom, and I said, you know, Will you, you know, come be part of the family? And she never was part of the family. But this child, back in her mother's custody, and whatever her mother did to raise her, she raised her well. And um, so I knew it was personal that day, where God had answered my prayer. Does it matter what I do? And it matters what we do, even if we don't always an- know what the answer is. And I know I've gone, gone over time, but I want to give a little challenge to each one of you. When I interview a teenager, I always, at the end of the interview, when um, we've built this little alliance, and, and hopefully they like me a little bit, I always ask them this question. And I say, can I tell you something about you? And they always say, sure. Can I tell you that in the history of the world, past, present, and future, no one will ever have your DNA. You are one of a kind, never to be repeated again. And you've been given gifts, and you've been given talents. Some people have more gifts. Some people have less. Some have you know, more talents, some have less, but whatever you have, you have. And the question we, we should ask is not, how do I fit in with everybody? Because in fact, we're not like everybody. Every one of us is uniquely different in the image of God. And we know this as, as believers in a very unique way. Uh, we know from Psalm 139 that we were create, created in our mother's womb. And God created us, and we know from Ephesians 1 that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And we are the workmanship created in Christ, this is Ephesians 2, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the question we should ask each other and spur one another on to is not how do we fit in, well, we should fit in as a body of Christ, but with the Holy Spirit as our director and Jesus Christ as our brother, we should be asking this question, I have all this, I've been given all this. I wonder, under the leadership and tutelage and care of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, I wonder what this baby can do. I wonder what this baby can do together.
from Galatians chapter 5. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, to love your neighbor as yourself. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ have crucified crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited and provoking and envying one another. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Be our strength and our redeemer, O Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If what the Apostle Paul says uh, in Colossians chapter 1 is true, that he is, in fact, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, invisible and, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So Beverly reminds us of an important thing this morning. It reminds us that God created everything, and he created it all for himself. It's kind of like a chairmaker, if you will. A chairmaker makes a chair, finishes it all, puts it up for sale. Someone buys it, and they take it home, and they use it for whatever they want to use it for. And the chairmaker doesn't really care. I mean, his job is done. He sold the chair. He made some money. That was the idea. God isn't like that. God makes the chair, and it remains his even if he expects that others will use it, they will sit on it, they'll stand on it, they'll fend off lions with it, they'll look after it, they'll wash it, they'll polish it, all that stuff. Doing all that stuff, it still remains God's chair. It is all his, the creation. One would expect God, who made everything and who maintains it as his own, would maintain an interest in it. If he created us to be stewards of it and to live in it and to keep it, he would have an interest in how that is going. And he does. Scripture tells us that he sustains it. He has great concern for it. In fact, his concerns for his creation are so great that he set aside his own glory and became a human being. Not only to give his life for our ransom, but for many. Paul writes, For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, in heaven, or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus' sacrifice, then, reconciles every human being with himself. All matter, the cosmos, everything becomes reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And 
in addition to that, he brings all things back to the proper relationship with himself and also into its proper function, which is all meant to give glory to God. In fact, God enlists us to partner with him in that. He teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're called not only to pray those words, but to live in ways that are consistent with those words and to seek to make God's words a reality. What Beverly is doing in her front line is participating in that. I mean, who knew on that day that that family would come to receive counsel from a person that God had reconciled to himself, right? I mean, in those situations, folks are hopeless, right? And yet, in that hopeless moment, God connected that family with himself through Beverly on her front line, doing what she does. Even if on some days she's not convinced that it's all working, still God is working through her in powerful ways, just like he works in all of you. As believers, you see, we are part of a divinely ordained movement to change the world. And whatever we do, wherever we are, we are part of God's plan. That should encourage you. If you think you don't matter that much or your job isn't that important, we can tell you right now that that's a lie of the evil one because you are instrumental in what God is doing. You are important to his plan. He has raised you up. He has given you life. He has reconciled you to himself for the purpose of being a witness to the truth, to being a person who loves justice and walks humbly before the Lord, who cares for his neighbor, who loves her friends. God makes no mistake in this. You are the ones he has called. One of the great joys about being a Christian is realizing that God chooses to work through us, wherever we are. One of the tricky things, however, in all this is learning how to see it, right? And in seeing it, to acknowledge it, and acknowledging it, to participate in it. It seems like a hard thing to do, and, and I know that very often in our desire to systemize things, to make it easy for us, we take something that's already easy and natural for us, and it makes it hard. Humans, you see, can ruin a free lunch. It's one of our gifts, I guess. But God calls us back to this glorious participation with him in what he is doing on planet Earth in reconciling it to himself. So many of us just don't have the words, the tools, or the means by which to see how we are already being fruitful for Jesus Christ in our daily lives on our front lines. So this series that we are endeavoring uh, begins with this idea that we are already doing what God has called us to be. We are being salt and light wherever God puts us. And we want to recognize what you're doing and we want to encourage you in it. So not only does it continue, but you get better at it. 
and you become more convinced that what you are doing is indeed God's will for you and for the world that he is in the process of reconciling to himself, that you fit in, that you are doing holy work wherever you are. So the, the book that we're reading, Fruitfulness, uh, um, on the front lines of your life, uh, starts out with uh, six facets or six things that we are to remember as we go forward. They are, and I'll list them quickly, and I'll get this information to you as we go along as well, but it is modeling godly character, number one. Number two, making good work. Number three, ministering grace and love. Number four, molding culture. Number five, being a mouthpiece for the truth and justice. And finally, being a messenger of the gospel. As we read through these things and take note of them, and and as we preach on them uh, for the next uh, few weeks, uh, ask yourself the simple question, which one of these things am I good at? Because I suspect that already you're good at some of these things. You're already doing it. Right? So we want to encourage you in that. We want to help you recognize that what you're doing has worth and, and learn together on how to acknowledge, recognize and acknowledge what we're doing and get better at it as time goes on. Now, you might be good at more than just one of these things. There may be several things that you're good at. But the cool part of all this is, is that these six uh, things, they call them the six M's in the book, uh, are an encouragement It's a a lens through which to see how God is already working through you in your daily life, through others and uh, around you and in their hearts, etc. So what Beverly's story teaches us is that Beverly just doing her job and being influenced by God's Holy Spirit and the work that he's doing in his life is bearing fruit. She might not always be aware of it. She might not always know the end of the story. But where she is faithful in being, that, that saved, that reconciled, that redeemed, that forgiven, that healed woman has a, has a role to play and she, and she does her job. She is fruitful. We want to get everyone to, to see that, recognize that. Our fruitfulness, you see, is rooted in Christ. It's already there, a gift of the Holy Spirit. Each one of us enjoy that blessing. Modeling godly character, on our front line, godly character is both developed and displayed. That means, uh, uh, like like Sister Beverly, you know, she knows that she can do these things, and and as she exercises that understanding, she gets better at it. And and she knows the situations where these things will work, and so she uh, almost fearlessly goes forward, bringing peace and justice in this world that is, that is really chaotic and hurtful. So she is doing that. She is modeling godly character. We want to ask ourselves, how do we do that in where we are, in our front line? Whether it's at home with your kids or your grandkids or at the factory or wherever, wherever it is, wherever you find yourself, are you modeling godly character? Making good work. There's dignity and value in the everyday tasks that we do. There is no one who is doing unimportant work, whether you are a cabinet maker, uh, a carpenter, uh, back in the days when I drove the honey wagon all over Cape Ann, you know, 
you, you think, oh, this isn't what I want to do. This is horrible. But I had the opportunity, and very often, whatever you're doing, you have the opportunity to spread grace and mercy and peace and loving kindness in the environment where you are. Are you doing that? Is your work, whatever it is, however mundane you may feel it is or unimportant that you might think it is, it has the power to change lives. Your influence, your presence in those environments is God sending you into those places with a mission to make good work, to model godly character. It's, it's, a, it's an opportunity to minister grace and love in light of the grace that God has shown us. The question to ask is how may we minister grace and love to those we interact with on our front line, wherever that may be. We have an opportunity to mold a culture. We can affirm about the, about the way we do life around here. How can we influence the culture on our front lines so people flourish more? Being a mouthpiece for truth and justice, how might we become champions of, living, of right living and fair dealing on our front lines? and be courageous enough to speak up when necessary. Being a messenger of the gospel, how might we grow in confidence in talking about Jesus with people on our front lines? Can we see pathways for sharing the gospel where we are? More on some of these things later. This morning we're talking about modeling godly character. Whatever it is, maybe it's, uh, for instance, displaying self-control, not flying off the handle when you're upset about something rather than blasting someone and just pouring out all your frustrations and, and, uh, and, uh, and bitterness in that one moment. Maybe showing that godly character is keeping a cool head, being retrospect, right? remembering that you may be the only, the, the only opportunity that this individual may have of ever experiencing a Christian. You know, this is your opportunity to share the love that Christ has shown you on that person. Maybe it's promoting peace by mediating an argument at work, you know, or, or, or not taking sides in some, in some uh, crazy political discussion that will go nowhere except for to make people upset. Maybe coming into that situation and bringing the peace of God into that environment will make a big difference in people's lives. Maybe someone will notice that you're not off your gourd. And they'll want to know why that is in this atmosphere, in this, in this uh, environment of bitterness that we find ourselves in today. Maybe it's bringing joy by encouraging those around you. A kind word. Maybe an offer to pray. Maybe a little care. Whatever we do, wherever we are, we are either reflecting God's character or we're not. So with this M we are reminding ourselves from the start that it is in our every day that God forms our character to be like Jesus so that, we can be, so that we can better reflect his character to those around us. And as that happens, we become bearers of fruit for the Holy Spirit, for God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's all good. In the book... Uh, Hopefully uh, you're, you're all reading this as we go along, but the book talks about a, a lady named Ruth. Um, she grew up in a Christian home, in a Christian environment, and I know the same thing happened to my sister. 
Uh, our, our family was worried about uh, the uh, difficulties in public education, so they sent my sister to a Christian school. And it was worse at the Christian school. You know, they may have had the idea of promoting godly characteristics, but in their actions, they were judgmental, they were legalistic, and they were mean-spirited. So my sister came through that experience being turned off by God or at God. Same thing with Ruth here. Raised in a Christian school among tough people under unbending discipline, having a hard line to toe. And she learned that God was a God of anger and of fearsome retribution. Finally, she graduated out of that and was greatly relieved but greatly damaged. Now, 28 years later, after suffering through, through uh, just dealing with all of that um, laundry, so to speak, uh, she found herself working for a guy named Jonathan. Now, they got on well, they became friends. Uh, Jonathan was the best boss that she ever had, she testifies. And she was shocked to find out that Jonathan was a Christian in a conversation with one of her co-workers who also turned out to be a Christian. She was surrounded by these crazy Christians. How could it be, she asked. He was so nice and kind. She struggled with that, trying to figure that out. How could her experience in that school be so different from these people where she worked? Well... It was one August, shortly before the week's holiday, the weekend, Jonathan handed her a letter, uh, an invitation to an Alpha conference. And as she put it, and this is, these are her own words, this resulted in emails going back and forth between us and me, spending weeks on end crying my eyes out about my weakness and insecurities. I wanted to accept the invitation to Alpha because I didn't for one minute believe that Jonathan would invite me to something that wouldn't be good for me. But I was terrified of once more facing a God of wrath and perhaps also more folks to punish and hurt me. But she says she went to the Alpha Conference and then a few weeks later she went to a Louis Palau Festival where she gave her life to Jesus, to the God of love, forgiveness, and grace a God that she would not have met if Jonathan hadn't come into her life. Loving, kind, godly character. Had he not been so compelling in his front line, in just simply living the life that God had called him to live, it would never have overcome her fears and her hurts. But of course, Jonathan had no clue of her history when she came to work for him. In fact, he didn't set out to be kind and gentle and merciful. He wasn't trying to be particularly loving. He was just being who God made him to be. God, by his grace, had made him all the things that Ruth needed in that moment in her life. And the same thing's true for you. You know, we, we kind of sometimes get going in our life, it's kind of, uh, one foot in, in front of the other, it's like walking through a blizzard. You become oblivious to what's going on around you. You're just moving forward uh, blindly, numbly. We're not called to do that. God has given us purpose in our life. 
He has given us, uh, uh, he has given us the spirit of understanding so that we can see with different eyes and feel with a different heart. He's taken away our, our heart of stoniness and, and give, us a, give us a heart that is capable of loving our neighbor. And we're to do that. We're to live in that reality. And wherever we can do that, wherever we are, wherever we work, wherever we play, even at the supermarket or the gas station or, or going around the rotary or wherever it is, God gives you opportunities to show something different to the planet Earth. That reconciliation is happening, that peace is possible, and for you to show them the way. So godly character springs from our new identity in Christ. We are new create creatures. In Galatians, Paul summarizes it all as freedom. Christ's grace and love frees us from the power of sin and frees us from the hamster wheel of legalism. He, his love graces us with that deep assurance of God's love, which gives us joy and peace and enables us to be other-centered. As the Apostle Paul puts it, we love because God first loved us. Godly character ripens from the power of his spirit working in us. His own quiet and his own quiet and determined way, God changes us, grows us. He tempers us. And he turns us in to people who honor God, who know Jesus, and are convinced of his truth. So, brothers and sisters, let us encourage one another to express ourselves in loving kindness. Like Beverly, I suspect that most of you, when you go to work in the morning, maybe aren't expecting miracles. But God has those in store for you. You may go to work thinking, I don't want to be here, I don't like this job, so on and so forth. But for now, that's where God has you, and he's put you there for a purpose. God does nothing vainly, you know, and he assures us that our lives are not vain exercises, that they are for his glory. So I would encourage you, you know, whatever you're doing to, to exemplify these godly characteristics, keep doing it. And, and maybe even magnify those things a little bit. Be, be more certain that this, is, God want, this is what God wants you to do. Be more excited about the opportunity. You know, when you believe that there are opportunities there to exemplify Christ-likeness, then you'll start to see those things. It's like a little kid going on an Easter egg hunt, right? He knows they're there somewhere, and he's, got, he's not going to leave until he gets some of that. So you don't want to leave work without getting some of that. So be encouraged. May the Lord shine through you this week. Glorify his name by your modeling godly character. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you want us to become more like your son.